weeks ago to kick things off. And so we'll be in three verses tonight. First John chapter 1, verse 5, 6, and 7. And the topic is walking in the light. Now this is the first of many contrasts. This is what um, makes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John so scary. Is that he contrasts what it looks like to clearly be a Christian and clearly not be a Christian. And so we are going to see the difference between light and dark. Light and darkness. When I say that, when I say light and dark, what, what comes to mind? And you don't have to answer um, me, but what what comes to the forefront of your mind when you think light, dark? Many of you would probably say, well, good and evil. Uh, maybe Jesus versus the devil. Uh, there's all kinds of things that come to our mind, and those things might be very true, but tonight we're going to go even deeper, because if we don't, if we don't go to where we're going tonight— like if you didn't, if you didn't experience and hear uh, what light means in the context of First John, uh, you'd be missing out on something, I believe. And so it's more than just moral purity and goodness. Uh, but we're going to talk about the very nature of God, and it, and I believe it's gonna it's gonna be powerful powerful for you. Uh, how about this? What does it mean for someone to walk in the light? Like how do you do that? If you were just going to tell someone, how do you walk in the light? Based on how you uh, were raised, maybe your background with uh, church and religion, you might say things like, well, you just do good things. That might be an answer. Or, um, you know, it's all about uh, just this communion and relationship with Jesus, and that's how, um, that's how you walk in the light. Or, uh, you know, you, you make sure that you got all your ducks in a row morally. I mean, there's all kinds of answers you might give. And again, many of those, if not all, are correct. Uh, but we're going to look into what that really means to walk in the light tonight. And I want to I approach it at a different angle. So um, I'll, I'll just let you dwell on this question as you walk through this with me tonight. Am I walking in the light? Am I walking in the light? You see, every day, you and I, we have all kinds of decisions that determine whether we're walking in the light or the darkness. You take something simple like uh, health and diet, and exercise. I don't know what your last week has looked like with Thanksgiving, and um, all, all the the eating, and all the fun, and camaraderie, and all the good things that happened during that time, but for me, it's been a little bit of a battle. You hear about when you're younger, people say, you know, oh man, the holidays are so rough, you know, because I gain weight, and I struggle, and of course, when your metabolism is through the roof, and you're 20, like that means nothing to you. You're just like, hmm. Stinks to be you, but I'm doing pretty good. I don't, I don't know what, uh, what that means for me. It doesn't mean much. But I'm starting to get to that point where I am, am experiencing um, what I heard all along growing up. My heart stuff, uh, which many of you know about six weeks ago, um, has kind of cleared up in the sense that nothing else has happened. And so uh, the doctors are like, okay, you can go back to exercising and all that. I took five or six weeks off, doctor's order. And, and, and so I started going back to the gym about a week ago. Um, but we've also, on the other hand, had all kinds of delicious snacks that normally wouldn't be in our house because of the holidays. Like, for instance, random stuff. We've got a whole container of um, cake. I don't know how to even describe it. Um, 
trimmings, cake trimmings. Tara was making a cake for Silas's third birthday last week, and she had to cut it uh, to design it and whatnot. And so it's just, a, it's just a box full of trimmings of cakes. I'll find myself just eating random trimmings, no frosting or anything. And so the last week, just in diet alone, I found myself uh, about 7 o'clock at night. If I don't have anything else going on, I'll be at the gym. And so from 7 to 8, I feel great. I'm like, I'm back into it. This is, forget New Year's resolution. Like, this is it now. I'm doing it. It feels good. And then I come home and eight to nine, I don't know why, I say I'm not going to do it, but even in my gym clothes, I'm sitting there in the kitchen eating trimmings of cake that, it, it, why do we even have it still? But like I'm, I'm just eating it, and I'm wondering like, how did I get here in life? I feel horrible about myself. Like you got decisions to choose. Are you going to walk in the light or the dark? Of course, you guys know in that analogy, the, the dark would be going to the gym and the light would be eating the cake, but just kidding, you're supposed to laugh at that part. But um on a much serious, uh, much more serious level, we know spiritually you've got decisions every day. Am I going to walk in the light or am I going to walk in the darkness? And so what we're going to do tonight in these three verses is we're going to start heavy. It's going to start with the foundation, just one verse about God's nature, that he is light and there is no darkness in him. I know many of you will know uh, some of the theology stuff we're talking about, but we're going to go deep and we're going to get in the weeds a little bit. And we're going to spend a good chunk of time talking about the difference between light and and dark. And then we're going to talk about two responses, verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 shows us what not to do. It's a deceived response that I believe many Christians have. They walk believing they're good with God, and yet they're living in rebellion to him. And then the last verse, verse 7, is going to end very practical as we talk about what it means and how to walk in the light. So we're going to do actually an exercise together. I know that might freak some of you guys out, don't worry. All you have to do is sit there. So you, you are um, already, you, you met the prerequisite for the exercise. You're, you're just going to sit. But uh, hopefully, it'll be powerful for you. So let's jump on in tonight. If you've got a Bible, uh, feel free. First John chapter 1, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have some right over the, the ledge of that Welcome Center. Feel free to grab one. Uh, you can take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And uh, if you're new to cross-training, we are usually in the ESV, English Standard Version, but most of the versions should um, be pretty, pretty similar. And it says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. So from him, after verses 1 through 4, that's Jesus. So this is the message we heard from Jesus when he was on earth. To you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. All right. First thing, we're going to stop. We're going to park here for a while. This is the foundation, that God is life. Now, you'd think I'd say that God is light, which is true, but the fact that I said God is life will make more sense here in a little bit. Now, essentially what John is saying to us is, hey, bare bones, here, here's the basics. God has no mixture of error in him. He's holy. He's pure. He does only good things. If it comes from God, it's good. You can't blame God for bad because God is only good. If you don't have that as a foundation, then the rest of this stuff doesn't really matter because your understanding of God will always be, um, it'll always be incorrect if you don't understand from the beginning that God is light and there is no darkness in him. At all. So, what I want to do is take a look at what light means and what darkness means. We'll actually start with darkness first. Now, darkness is several things. Number one, it is the absence of light. 
It is the absence of light. So at the very beginning, creation of the world, you see in Genesis 1 that there was just darkness, right? And then there was light, and it was good. It was good. The absence of light um, for us on a practical level and the decisions that you make daily simply is a result of free will. That God has given mankind free will. And so if you choose God, uh, then you're choosing light. But if you choose anything other than God, you are choosing darkness. That's why all other religions we would consider darkness. There's not Christianity and then a bunch of really, really good ones, maybe even halfway adequate ones. No, there's just the truth and everything else. And so there has to be, if there is going to be free will, if there's going to be light in the first place, if there's choice, there has to be an alternative, right? I told you we were going to get in the weeds pretty quick here. So if God says, I'm light, and you got a choice, what's the opposite of light? There's got to be darkness. There's got to be darkness. And so darkness is the absence of light. It's what you choose if you don't choose God. So everything in your life is darkness. Now, here's the thing. You can have really, um, you can have things in your life that seem really good, but if they're not lining up with God's will, they can be a path of darkness. For instance, having a family, having a spouse, having children is a good thing. Having a wife is a good thing. Kids are defined as a blessing from God. Whether you always feel like that or not, they are defined that way biblically. But what happens if you idolize your spouse or you idolize your children? Then something that seemed good has now become darkness. If you continued in the path of idolizing them, something that seemed good would be darkness. You see, anytime you choose Anything other than God, it is darkness. It is darkness. Or, in that context, any time that you exalt something above God, it is darkness. So, darkness is the absence of light. It's also an action or an entity. Now, it's in the spiritual realm. So, we're talking about sin and evil in the spiritual realm. But it can show itself in the physical. I'll give an example of that here in a bit. What I mean by this is that the Bible says there is evil or there is darkness in the way that we behave. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it'll say right before the flood and, and, and God flooded the earth and uh, essentially started over. You see in verse 5, God says that every desire and thought and motivation and tension in the heart of mankind was continuously evil. So you can have evil or dark motivations. You can have dark behavior. So it's something that you can do. It's an action, like a verb. Or it can be a noun. It can be an entity. So you look at, again, back to this free will thing. There was a time, even though angels were created um, to be good, they were created good, there was a time that God gave them an opportunity to choose, to follow him or not. And, of course, we know Satan uh, one of the, the three archangels, and then a third of the angels chose to uh, worship themselves and to exalt themselves above God. And so they are now demons and Satan. And so there is an entity, there is evil in the world. Now, 
here's what that means on a practical level. We know there's evil out there. But you look at the news, you see terrorism, you see all kinds of things that you say, like that is tangible, that is physically. In the spiritual realm, we've always known there's evil, but we can physically feel it. Let me, let me give you an example. I remember when we were in Utah, uh, <clears throat> and I've probably shared this one um, before, but there was a, a young gal who came to our church, and um, we got to know her a little bit. She said that she came from a prostitution ring in Las Vegas, and she would got hooked up with some bad folks in Salt Lake City, which is a couple hours from where we were in Utah, and she said that people were essentially chasing her, and she had a, a horrible history. Like, she had a rough, rough past. The second I met her, I knew something was off. I knew something was off. I can't tell you, and I don't want to get all weird and spiritual on you, but I just knew, man, there is some darkness going on. Matter of fact, one time when I was preaching, the first time she was in when I was preaching, I remember uh, just seeing her, and you would think it would be pretty impossible to preach and pray at the same time, but my soul was stirred. I was praying inside because I knew Man, something is my eyes were drawn. Like she was watching just like everyone else, but I knew something is not quite right. She came over one time to the church and she was in the building and she walked out. And I remember, again, I don't want to get all weird on you, but I remember walking down the hall after she left the hallway and saying, Where, what happened to the lights? What happened to the lights? I looked up and none of the, none of the bulbs were burnt out. But there was just an oppression. There was something that tangibly seemed darker, like literally darker, in that building. Now, Tara and I had no experience with this kind of thing prior to Utah, so we were just like, this is weird. To fast forward the story, um, an older man in the church tried to minister to her, and one night um, on a drug-induced bin, she beat him to a pulp, um, broke ribs, and uh, they both ended up in jail. And then a few weeks after that, and we knew there was something deep, deeply disturbed about her. Um, while everyone was worshiping God on a Sunday morning, uh, she was at home and killed herself. That's when the spiritual becomes the physical. Uh, where the spiritual realm crosses over into the spiritual. So darkness is an action, it's an intention that you can do, but it's also coming from somewhere. And the devil is the king of this world. Um, he will be put uh, to an end in end times. And I thank God for that. But right now he is the prince of air in this kingdom. And then last but not least, it's a lack of life. Now we're going to go into this in just a little bit. So I'm going to leave that there. So what John's saying is God is none of these. God is none of these. Now, what is light? In the context of the whole Bible... Life, if you look at, again, Genesis um, all the way through Revelation, when we talk about light, we're talking about life, we're talking about goodness, we're talking about moral purity, we're talking about holiness, meaning no mixture of error in him. He is pure. He is perfect. That is, that is light. Now, <coughs> this leads to questions. And I know we could spend a lot of time on this, so I just want to, I, I, I told myself, I said, don't, don't get into it, because it could lead to a whole bunch of things. But we're here, this is what we do on Wednesday nights, so let's, let's just go for it. Um, let's, let's start with the first question. Uh, if God is good, he is light, he is pure, 
then how can there be evil in the world? Of course, um, we, we think about this and we have heard sermons on this. And one of the, the reasons or um, answers that I would give for this is simply that God created the capacity for evil, not evil itself. Again, um, if God creates everything good, but here's the kicker, he gives free will, there has to be an alternative to choosing him. And that alternative will always be bad. It will be evil. So it's the darkness when there's no light. Now, what about this? What do you do? Well, let's back up. Does God use evil? Because it seems like in Scripture he does. Does he use perceived evil for his own plan? You look at Romans 13. It says, submit to the authorities. And then you get into it a little bit more. And it says that God will have some nasty authorities carry out his judgment on earth. Oh, yeah. He uses people who are evil to do things that he wants, to carry out his plan. And I'll even tack another question onto that. On top of that, how in the world can we see in Scripture... Um, God do what we perceive as morally corrupt things and still be good. For example, it says, um, like most of us would say anger isn't good, but it says God God has anger. Uh, we would say in a lot of cases, wrath is not good, but God is a God of wrath because he's a God of justice. Um, we would say that jealousy, in human terms, jealousy doesn't seem like a good thing. It seems like a bad quality. But God is a jealous God. Or, even this, all of those passages in the Old Testament where God tells his people to kill other people. Those are hard to stomach. And we talk, talked about this a little bit in First Samuel. But let me just say this. Number one, we make a huge mistake when you and I approach morality and God as separate. If we approach it as, well, Here's me, and here's God, and here's morality. What we'll end up doing is judging God against our own idea of morality. But you've got to understand, he's the creator, and he determines what morality is. You've got to take morality and God, and you don't judge him against morality. You put them together. Meaning, whatever God does, if he is inherently good, is the standard for morality. So if God is jealous, and he's jealous for himself, that's a good thing. Whereas you and I, we could be jealous and it could be bad. If God is angry, well, we know he's a God of justice. He hates sin. That's a good thing. Even if God, you guys are going to get ticked. Even if God wants to create some people for, as Scripture says, uh, the potter creates some things for noble purposes and some for common use. So if he created some people in the Old Testament to show his wrath so that others would see his mercy, that he would get glory as a God of justice and a God of forgiveness and grace, God is right. Does that mean you and I can kill people? No. <coughs> and you're saying to yourself, so basically, God can do, it kind of feels like a double standard. God can do whatever he wants, and it's always right. 
now we're getting somewhere. Yes, absolutely. You were not before God testing God against something that you had. God is our ultimate source of morality. So if you see it, it doesn't matter if you get nasty, weird fuzzies in your stomach. You're like, that doesn't feel right that God would do that. It is good if it is God doing it. Let me just read to you very quickly. I told you we were going to get in the weeds a little bit here. Romans chapter 9. This is one of those, this is one of those scary ones. God says to us, he says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So the vessels of mercy might be the Israelites and the other folks in the the Old Testament that we see God said, take them out. You're going to the promised land, take them out. He dealt with them with patience, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Again, God does it, it's good. And I think humanity has come to a place where, especially in our culture, we believe that we can question everything and that somehow, some way, in our pride, we have enough of a foundation of purity, of righteousness, of knowledge, that we can question God against our own view of morality. And God's saying, you don't know morality outside of me and my actions. If I did it, it's good. It's for my plan and for my glory. This is fun, isn't it? Now, let me end on this first verse with this. The context of the whole Bible, light is shown as goodness and holiness and moral purity and life. But the context of John's writings... um, is that light is referred to as life. If you go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says that in him uh, was uh, life, and it was the light of men. And there was darkness, but none in it, and and the light overcame the darkness. You see, John, he has a whole theology of light, because he talks about light uh, just about more than anyone else in Scripture. And when he refers to light, God is light. Okay, this is the nature of God. He's saying God is life. He is the source of life, the giver of life. He is life. Now, this is where it's important. This is why at the very beginning I said, if you just know the basics of light and darkness, and you don't go deeper into this and understand what John's saying when he says light, you might miss something. And so darkness is the lack of life, the lack of life. This changes the whole verse. Now we see this is the message that we have heard from him. Message uh, angelica, that is the, the Greek word, that's where angel comes from. Angel literally means messenger. But this is the message that we have heard from him, that would be Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So in other words, he's saying the message we've heard and we proclaim is that God is life. God is life. Now, 
We touched on this a little bit last time, uh, but how many people in this world do you think view Christianity or religion as a whole as life-giving? How many people are breaking down the doors of churches saying, get me in there. I love all these rules. That whole country club feel, oh, I need some of it. The judgment and the condemnation and all the don't do this and you better do this been attracted to that since I was born. No. Let's be honest. The world sees God as a buzzkill. The world sees God as someone who lacks life. That if you don't have God, man, you could do things that are fun. You could do things that are enjoyable, and you can pursue happiness. But if you've got God, you've got boundaries. Basically, that only means that it's going to limit you in your life experience. And John's saying, you guys have completely, you have no idea that like you cannot have true, real life outside of God. It's kind of like this, adrenaline junkies, right? So let's just talk worldly for a second. Some of us were content without jumping out of airplanes. We're content without uh, fighting bulls. We're content without all of those things. But there's some people in life that have gotten a little taste of it. And they don't just want a little more. Like they are, they are addicted to it. We call them adrenaline junkies, right? Why? Why are they addicted to it? Because they've tasted that there's something better. There's a bigger thrill. There's more of a life-giving experience. They experience things in it that they can't otherwise. And so they, they can't go back to their old life. And that's what the faith is. It's people who have said, I have come to God. I thought it was about rules. I thought it was about regulations. I thought it was about boundaries. But it is breaking through the boundaries. It is true freedom. I don't do things for God because I have to. I do them because I want to. Because I find life here. And like, how do you explain life to someone who doesn't have life? Right? Like you could go to the morgue all day long and stand over dead bodies and say, Hey, I just want to tell you guys I had a great day. Um... Uh, There's so much more out there for me to experience. Uh, Like, it would be silly, right? Because that's what it's like explaining life to dead people. And that's what it's like telling a a, a spiritually dead world about a living Jesus. It doesn't make sense to them. Even in my own life, my own life, I experienced this basic fundamental understanding that God is life. My relationship with Jesus is life. Um, last week, when Thanksgiving hit, you know, if you, you know the, the busyness of the holidays. And so my relationship with God, the, the, the daily and abiding in him, it, it slacked a little. Thursday, yeah, I struggled. I could tell I didn't have as much joy. Friday, man, it was busy. We were busy, busy, busy. And, and I didn't, I was out of my routine and I didn't spend the time that I, that I like to with the Lord. By Saturday afternoon, I was at a family event. I kid you not. I was so depressed. Like nothing was wrong with my life. I was so depressed. I just had anger inside. I didn't want to be there. I couldn't say why I didn't want to be there. Like, why don't you want to be with your family? I like those people. I, I, I felt like I was going to snap on someone. This is the pastor of your church talking. But immediately I knew. Every time I get to feeling like this, it's because I've stopped coming to the source of life. And for me, 
I'm not saying for you. There's a lot of reasons for depression, different things. For me, it's always an abiding in Jesus this year. So I came in Sunday morning, and I sat in my office, and I read, and I read, and I read the scriptures until I found life again. And I just immersed myself in Jesus. You get to that place in life where you realize, I don't, I can't even, I can enjoy things in life, relationships. I can enjoy stuff, but I can't, I can't find life outside of communion with the Lord. This is a big deal. Verse 6. Move a little bit quicker here. Verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. All right. Second thing we see now, these are our responses. This is our first response. It would be a bad one. And verse 7 is uh, our appropriate response. This first one is a deceived response. It's a deceived response. Now remember, who is John talking to? He's talking to a group of people in a religion called Docetism, which is saying that Jesus never came to earth. He didn't therefore die on the cross. His blood wasn't shed, so it can't forgive sins. They were trying to convince people. They were a group of false teachers saying, you can have life outside of believing that he really came, that he really lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. Stop thinking about that. You can have life and happiness without that. That's kind of the core of what these false teachers are doing. And John's saying straight up, y'all, if you say with your mouth that you're good with God, but you don't, but you don't walk in him, you don't live in him, you don't abide in him, then you're lying. And there's a lot of people out there filling the local church who believe that they can essentially Claim Jesus is Lord, but do what they want, and that God, to some degree, is going to be okay with it. That God wants their happiness more than anything else. I would ask those folks, how's that working out for you? Probably not much happiness in that. There's several reasons and examples of this kind of deception, and I want to walk through it a little bit, but let me ask you, when it comes to walking in darkness, can you mix light and darkness? Can you mix them together? No. Either got one or the other. If you try to mix them, at best, what do you get? Shady. How many of you have a shady relationship with God right now? You feel that turmoil, just like I told you earlier about the diet and the exercise. One minute you feel good because you're walking in the light. You're healthy. The next minute you feel sick to your stomach because you're doing things you know you shouldn't. That's turmoil. I remember early in my walk with Jesus, I would often tell people, I feel worse about life sometimes as a Christian more than I even did before. Because before I started following Jesus, I I was just oblivious. I was just a sinner. I did some nice things, but I, I, I I was just spiritually dead. I didn't get it. But as a Christian, when I would say I wanted to walk in, in the light <laughs> and I found myself walking in darkness, it would tear me up inside. I would be miserable. I would be miserable. So, is John saying here um, <clears throat> that to be a Christian, that you can't sin at all? That you have to be perfect? That you can't screw up? Right? 
Yes and no. This is the beauty of the gospel. No, in the sense that in order to have a relationship with a holy God, one sin or a million sins will separate you. You will be unholy. You've got to be able to stand before God perfect, holy, without blemish. And the beauty of the gospel is that we have that in Jesus, that his blood covers our sin. No matter how many times you biff it, screw things up, he is going to say, you are mine because you are found in Jesus. You are found in Jesus. That's what abiding in Jesus is. It's a, it's a, it's a physical, tangible experience of the position that we have in Jesus. Spiritually, we know if you're found in if his blood covers you, if you've placed your faith in him, then you are found perfect before God. But the flip side of that is, <clears throat> on earth we know that we're going to battle with sin in our fleshly bodies until we leave this thing or Jesus comes back. And in a few verses, John's going to tell us, if you all say you're without sin, you're a liar. So we know we make mistakes all the time. We know we do. But your heart changes everything. If we say, so if we give lip service, that we have fellowship, that Greek word koinonia means closeness. So if you're saying, I'm close with God, I'm good with God. With him while we walk in the darkness. Walk means to live or to behave in darkness. We lie. We lie. You, can, you, you lie to others. <laughs> Some of you, you know, you're good at faking it, right? You can tell, man, things are good. I'm, I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing different things. I feel great about life. But you know you're living a double life. It's miserable. You'll eventually start lying to yourself. What happened to King David when he committed adultery? He tricked everyone around him. By the time Nathan the prophet standing before him and tells him of another guy who was doing the exact same things as David, even though David wouldn't even say, I'm in the wrong. David condemns the dude. And then Nathan says, that's you. David got so used to lying and covering up his sin that he lied to himself and started to believe it. And do not practice the truth or live in accordance to the truth. So, I want to rifle off here for you some common deceptions that I think are, are common amongst us in the church. Because <clears throat> I know what happens. You guys read that verse and you're like, that's not me. That's not me. I, I don't say that I'm going to walk in the light and then I walk in the darkness. Well, here's, here's four things that I think some of us struggle with. Number one is just the flat out abuse of grace. You see this uh, sometimes. This is maybe... <clears throat> the most blatant, heartbreaking uh, thing that we see in the church. Uh, that people say, I confess Jesus is Lord, um, and, and yet God created me this way with these nasty desires and, and this brokenness and things that maybe the church says is sin, but I'm going to keep on living the way I am. And I know that God is good with me. Everything's fine. You ever know anyone like that? That you look at their life and you're like, oh, it is obvious you do not have a relationship with God. It's obvious. And what do they do? They get mad because like, who are you to judge? Who are you to say? We all have sin, right? Grace covers it, right? Yeah. Well, I'm no different. But God knows the heart. And here's the thing. If you have a legit relationship with God, you got three things that are going to make you sick of your sin. 
Number one, you got the Holy Spirit that's going to convict you. So if you so if you got a legit relationship with God, you got the Holy Spirit that's going to convict you. Number two, part of the new covenant is when you place your faith in Jesus, He gives you a new heart, a heart that desires to follow Him, to love Him. He says in Ezekiel thirty six that He removes this heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. So it doesn't mean you're perfect, you're great, everything's wonderful. But when you fall, you think, should I even get back up? And you got a heart inside you that goes, boom, 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 boom. I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to live like I used to live. I want to follow Jesus. So you got the Holy Spirit, you've got that new heart, and you've got that daily communion with God that when you get so wrapped up in his holiness, you will find yourself between those three things, abiding in Jesus, a new heart, and a Holy Spirit, you will find yourself sick of sin. So if you, can, if you find yourself abusing grace, that's incredibly scary because it means you're probably lacking those three things, and those three things are the marks of a believer. Like if you don't feel that conviction, it's scary. Those who abuse grace view salvation as a transaction with God and not a walk with God. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. We call them the one prayer wonders. Well, at kids camp, when I was 11, I heard the gospel and I I prayed a prayer and I raised my hand. But for the next 17 years, I kind of did whatever I wanted. I think God saved me back then. I don't know. Or, well, I got baptized because people were kind of talking to me about it and pressuring me into it. But it was good. I think that's what made me good with God. I could just be giving you a public bath if it wasn't legit, being that you had faith in Jesus. Or just lip service. Maybe you find yourself faking it year after year. Second one, I think some of us are deceived <clears throat> because we have the wrong focus. Now, here's the one out of the four that I think you, you can probably be a believer, and we struggle with this. Everyone in this room, including myself, can struggle with this on occasion. Some of us might be smack dab in the middle of it right now. This is where your focus is on your sin and your inadequacy more so than Jesus and how he covers your sin and how he overcame death and the grave. See, this is the beauty, this is one of the many beauties of having a relationship with God, is that you got, you got a new star of the show. You got a new focus in life. You got someone who has pushed you off a center stage, and you get to, to, to focus on them. That's one of the beauties. It's a relief. For those of you who know the pressure, maybe you had uh, parents pressuring you growing up, Maybe you, you have felt the pressure you put on yourself to, to be the best employee in the world and to, to make a good life for yourself. Listen, when you find, hey, this ain't about me, and my salvation means I can focus on Jesus and not myself, there's relief in that, is there not? There's freedom. I ain't got to live up to all these expectations of everyone, including myself. I can freely follow him. <clears throat> my heart hurts for these folks um, because they feel often like, I make mistakes in my relationship with God. I know that I'm a sinner. And some days I just don't want to wake up and do it all over again. 
And what they, they got to understand is that when your focus is on your own sin and your own inadequacy, that's where your power comes from. That's why you feel a lack of power. But when your focus is on Jesus as the overcomer and what he has done on the cross, you, you get power from that. And that power compels you and empowers you to walk in the light. Third one. Let me go back for a second. Last Friday, Silas turned three years old, and uh, Tara was making him a birthday cake. And she had the frosting on, and she had M&Ms on top in the form of of a three. And uh, she was done, and it was looking good, and we were excited. And we went into another room. We told Silas he couldn't look at it. It was a surprise, and he certainly couldn't touch it or anything. And it was up on a <clears throat> countertop, so we couldn't really get to it unless he went and found a stool. And we went for maybe two or three minutes into another room. And you know, as a parent, when you hear that silence, yes, silence sounds like something when you got a toddler in the house. You know immediately, either when you see them, they're going to be peaceful and like playing by themselves, or maybe they even drifted off and fell asleep, and it'll be the cutest, most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Or it is the sign that they are doing something horrible. And there's an intuition that says, get in the other room, something bad's going on. So we went in the other room because we didn't hear Silas. And we went around um, to look for him and I couldn't find him anywhere. Now, our house isn't very big, but I, I just, I kind of briefly looked through the living room and, and then I looked in the kitchen. I was like, I can't find him. I said, Silas, where are you, buddy? Where are you? Didn't hear anything. Silas, where are you? Didn't hear anything. Tara starts calling out for him. Silas, baby, come out. Where are you? Now, you know the background of Silas when we were in Coles and he ran off from us. Like he's seen the pain and the terror on our face when we thought we lost him. So we thought we were getting past some of this stuff, right? He's not answering. And, and so Tara's like, is this real? Like, is he really not? Where is he? Because he's the kind of kid that would open the door and boom, be gone. So I ran downstairs. I checked through all of the rooms. I can't find him anywhere. Now I'm screaming. Tara's doing the mama like, baby, where are you? And I'm doing the Silas, you answer me right now. Kind of thing. So they were probably offsetting a little bit. But I could not find him. 60 seconds goes by. And it feels like an eternity. We're like, where are you? And finally I went back in the living room and, and I looked and there was just a little crevice under a table like this and, and the couch. And he was tucked away as much as you can be tucked away. And he had his face just put up against the wall like this. He was just all up in it and he was cuddling like, I mean, he was just a sliver. And I, I looked at him and I said, Silas, what are you doing? He didn't want to look at me. I said, baby, get out. What are you doing? And he turned around and he had frosting all over his face. He had it all over his pants and he just looked at me and he didn't know whether to be scared or sad or what, but he didn't say a word. And in that moment, my heart broke. Because as a dad, I realized we've tried to raise him as good as we can to know grace and mercy. But in that moment, he was hiding in his shame because he feared the consequences of his actions more than he knew the love and the grace of his mom and dad. And for those of us who have the wrong focus, that's what stops us from wanting to go on when we screw up. Because we can just focus on our sin and the junk and the drama And it gets us down and we don't realize God wants something so much better for us than that. Maybe that's you tonight. Walking the line. This is uh, commonly 
uh, known in the teenage world as youth group. (laughs) This is uh, the folks who want to know what they can get away with and still follow Jesus. Hey, I was just kind of curious, if you're dating someone, how far can you go and it not be sex? Well, I just had a question about this, and, and, and you find that some of your conversations with people are all about how far can they go into the darkness without actually being in the darkness. Of course, we know they're missing the boat completely. They're missing the heart of God. And the last one are those who are deceived because they try to merge dark and light. In our culture, in politically correct America 2016, you know people hate to call darkness dark. Nobody wants to call sin, sin, because that's offensive. And so what happens if you don't want to man up and repent of sin? What happens if you don't want to call out sin? Is you start to make the darkness the light. You often see people, even denominations, who change their theology on specific sins. Say, well, 20 years ago we believed that was something that was obviously sinful, but, you know, we've progressed as a culture, and so we don't see this sin quite as bad as it used to. Matter of fact, we think that you can, you know, actually do these things and not be in sin. They'd call that progressive and revelatory from God. But more times than not, not every time, but more times than not, you see those who change their theology on specific sins, but I don't want them to fit their own lifestyle. It's when they just say, you know what, I don't want to walk in the light and get out of the darkness because the darkness feels good, and so I'm just going to merge the two. It doesn't work. Last but not least, verse 7. So that was the bad example. Here's the good one. Here's the appropriate response. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, how many of you want to sing that DC Talk song right now? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One another, scholars are split. Some believe, um, if you just take it for face value, it seems like we're talking about the church. Like, hey, if you walk in the light, you're good with other believers. Um, but it seems like um, <clears throat> it seems like it's actually referring to God that we have fellowship with one another, being us and God. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin, from all sin. So the last thing we see is this appropriate response, and specifically the beginning and end of this verse. If we walk in the light cleanses us from all sin. In the Greek, this right here is in the present tense, meaning basically this. If you want to know, not have to question whether your sins are forgiven today, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Like sometimes we're insecure for bad reasons, and other times we're insecure for good reasons. Maybe if you question whether you're right with God, there might be validity to that, that you just aren't walking in the light. So basically, John's saying, hey, this isn't rocket science. If you want to know whether you are good with God, that you follow Jesus, you actually got to follow Jesus. 
Not are you perfect or do you have it all together, but do you desire to follow him? This is where it's crucial to understand light meaning life. Do you want to follow? Not are you perfect and holy in every behavior that you've ever done because you know on earth we're going to fall short. But do you desire, do you have a new heart that wants to follow him regardless of where you are in your walk with him? Do you desire him? Are you moving and aligning your life with his? And this is what makes this whole book so scary. That's a big if right here. If we walk in the light. If. Of course, walking in the light means obedience and repentance and faith. But really it means, are you experiencing the fullness of life in Jesus? Are you experiencing it? So, this is what I said we were going to end very practically. We're going to do a little exercise together. Here, I know we started heavy, and now we're coming back up to the surface. How in the world do you walk in the light? Now, there's so much we could say about this. Again, obedience, repentance. um, These are all important aspects of walking in the light. But I think we can take it a step further. Today, tonight, tomorrow, how do we walk in the light? Because I don't want to just leave you and say, hey, guys, just go do what you know is right and and everything will be great and just do good stuff. That's walking in the light. You guys would say, great. (laughs) I feel the same as I did when I came in. But I want you to find some tangible relief. So we're going to do a little practice together. Now, this could be awkward for some, but trust me, you could fake it if you want to. I don't want you to fake it, but we could do it. And what I'm going to have you do, you don't have to right now, but I'm going to have you just sit there and close your eyes. And in your mind, we're going to do a little bit of meditation and prayer together. I'm trying not to get weird on you, but just roll with it. And just know this is a resetting of your mind. This might be a healthy thing for you to do in some form or fashion on a regular basis in your own quiet time with God. So... Close your eyes, if you would. I want you to take a deep breath. Remember, Eastern meditation is emptying your mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind with Christ. So take a deep breath. And I want you to picture in your mind your daily routine. What you're going to do tomorrow. the different activities of your day? What are you focused on? What's coming to mind? Maybe you're busy. Maybe you're going to be running around all over the place. Maybe it's a slow day for you. But how does it make you feel thinking about this? Are you stressed? Do you feel sick because you know you've got to talk to someone and address an issue? at work or at home? Do you feel yourself tensing up, thinking about the busyness? Whatever you might have going on? As you think about that, let me ask you this. Is this the true life that God had in mind when you accepted his son as Lord and Savior? Is this that abundant life Now, 
you walked through tomorrow and all the things you have going on in your mind. And God was the focus. How much better do you think your day would go? Now picture just a white room with nothing in it, completely empty. So all you're thinking about is a white room, nothing in it, completely empty. This is your day tomorrow. You've scratched everything. You just completely emptying your mind of what you have to do and the stress that goes with it. You got a blank slate. And on the wall, you see written one task. This is all that's in the room, just you. And on the wall, written one task, and that is seek Jesus. Seek Jesus. This is your only priority. This is the only thing that God wants you to do tomorrow, tonight. This means that you rest in him, that you don't have to worry about doing things to prove yourself to him tomorrow or the people around you, that you don't have to worry about screwing things up in your life in any way, shape, or form, that you can't earn God's love tomorrow any more than he's given it to you right now, that you can't lose God's love, that you have everything you need right now in this room with just you and Jesus. And he's saying, all you have to do is enjoy me. Forget everything else in the world. Just dwell on my truth, that I love you, that I came for you, that I'm here with you, that I cleanse you, that I redeemed you, that I invited you into a new family, as a citizen of heaven. Think about what it would be like to just enjoy him. How does that make you feel? Picture the peace, the comfort, the freedom of knowing This is all that matters. This is all that I got. It's me and God and whatever he wants. And he wants me to just rest at his feet. Now I want you to think of those things that you did a moment ago, the things that you have on your plate tomorrow. And I want you to bring them back in the room and submit them underneath this task so they don't fill the whole room anymore and they're not overwhelming but they fall underneath this one task of seeking Jesus, resting in Jesus. And picture as you do these different tasks that you have tomorrow, picture the Holy Spirit leading you through your day, waking up tomorrow, talking to him, asking him where you want, he wants you to go, filling you with peace, giving you direction and guidance, helping you to enjoy God for God and commune with him all along the way.
Jesus is walking in the light. You can open your eyes. I know that could be a silly exercise for you. But isn't it good just to reset sometimes and realize through all the chaos of your daily life, you got one job. That's to enjoy Jesus. This enjoyment is going to make you want to turn from sin, embrace holiness, obey him, listen to him, dwell on truth throughout the day. Everything else in your world will get smaller. It'll have more meaning than it ever did before in light of Jesus. What did God tell you as we were doing that? For some of you, maybe it was, you're doing a lot tomorrow that you shouldn't be doing. For others, it was, it's time to invite God into the chaos of your life. Whatever he told you, though, act on that. Walking in the light isn't just about doing good things and being a morally good person. It's enjoying life in Jesus. That's our message. That's what we're here for. You can have that abundant life every single day. Let's pray.